Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It is remarkable how little details like soda machines, along with any number of other recurring props, can ground a game in a reality we recognize, he said. If video games are about creating a sense of place in which players can immerse themselves, something like a soda machine on a subway platform can go a long way towards making that happen. Uh, those are the words of Professor Jason Morissette in a piece by our own Patrick Klepik called This Professor Has Documented 2,000 Soda Machines in Video Games. And that went up this week. I'm Danielle Riendo. This is Waypoint Radio, episode 140. Uh, and joining me today are Rob Zachney. Hello, hello. And Patrick Klepik. Is it soda? Is it pop? Is it soda pop? <laughs> well, you're from the Midwest, so you say pop, right? I, Maybe? Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, you say both. Okay. Yeah, I felt like it's it's it switched when I was younger. Like it was not necessarily one or the mm-hmm. other. It was a lot of – I know that's usually pinned on the Midwest as one over the other, but I, I feel like I heard both <laughs> when, I a, okay. when I was a kid. That's fair. Rob, you're from the Midwest originally, so I don't know. You, you have the same feeling on this? Yeah, I mean like when I was little, it was uh, pop like all the time. And I yeah. think at some point I picked up that it was a regionalism. And immediately mm. scrubbed it. Like, <laughs> okay. I was like, oh, I can go anywhere and say soda, and, like, it's going to travel, and people are going to know. But if I go around saying pop, like, people are going to immediately be like, oh, so you're a Hoosier, and who needs that? <laughs> and who needs that? Well, who needs that indeed, I guess. I, it's funny. I, I don't know. Regional, weird little regionalisms are very funny to me. But so are, of course... The, the main topic here, which I, I wanted to talk about minutia in games, not just minutia, but like little things like this. Uh, Patrick, I, I think everybody uh, was pretty excited about this piece. I got like three different, you know, I, I sort of share every story that's going up every day with like the wider Vice community and like three different people DM me and they were like, let me know the second that goes up. They were very excited to hear about the guy who had documented 2,000 soda machines in games. Yeah, so. this is uh, only goes to show that uh, sometimes you throw things at the wall and occasionally they <laughs> stick. I write a lot. Of, I write. A, I, there are stories I write that I tell myself as I'm writing them, this is fucking fascinating. Like People are going to be super into this. It's going to do good traffic. It's also a good story. And then you publish it and nobody gives a shit. Oh. And then oh. you you send you spend thirty seconds sending some questions off to a guy about these soda machines he documented, <laughs> and every everyone's losing their mind over it. So, <laughs> as just to say, as long as I've been doing this, I sometimes cannot tell the stories that are going to resonate with people in the stories uh, that don't. But yeah, I I'm uh, I remember I did a story at Giant Bomb. I think it was a Giant Bomb about like somebody that was documenting plants. 
in video games, and there have been blogs that document toilets and oh yeah pizza. So like the, the idea of um, of following sort of otherwise innocuous or, or or visual representations of real life objects in video games is not uh, new. But I th- what, what caught my eye and what often catches people's eye is the number, right? It's the dedication that uh, this particular academic has put into this side project to uh, to find 2,000 instances of it, which is a lot more than you'll usually see um, from folks that decide to go down a particular rabbit hole of of this type of uh, sort of documentizing. And, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I, like, I don't know that I have big takeaways from it other than it's interesting to see how different games approach this, which uh, I think it sort of inherently has value in a – in an industry that is very bad at documenting itself. I mean, I remember uh, one of the things that like made me go like, oh, holy shit, when I was playing the original Half-Life was it had uh, working uh, soda machines. Like I remember like walking up to the, uh, you know, to, to the vending machines in the Black Mesa like, uh, you know, break room and just like slapping that button over and over again and like hearing the like thunk of the can and they start like falling out on the floor uh and i think part of it is that it is such a ubiquitous and recognizable thing from real life that like we've all interacted with that like it's just something it's just close enough to a real world object that it gives us like a sense of like, well, how closely is this game mirroring reality, right? Like what does soda brands look like in this game? I'm always a little disappointed when the soda machine has just a big like cola uh, sign yeah. on the front of it. Like, no, no, no. Give me, give me a convincing fake brand. That's that's what I demand. Give me fizzy fuzz cola, please. Or something, whatever, you know, something, something specific. Well, that's, that's a lot of it, right? It's sort of this weird specificity. And it's also the kind of thing I, I have always been, because I'm me, of course. I always love toilets in games. And I love, like, when, of course, Immersive Sim nerd loves flushing every toilet in a game. It's definitely your love of Immersive Sims. Uh, well, but the, the thing the is, that goes, that goes so – like, I remember uh, – uh, Rob, uh, correct me if I'm wrong because I feel like you may be able to speak more authoritatively than me on this. But I, remember, I seem to remember the – so, like, Danielle, the, the – uh, the the metric you're using of whether you can flush a toilet, uh, it really I think goes back to Duke Nukem 3D, um, like sort of the advent of the build engine um, in the 90s. Like Duke Nukem 3D uh, was sort of like the beginning of oh you can interact with things in the environment and hitting this like part of the appeal of Duke Nukem 3D other than being a teenager and it was a, a shooter where you could see strippers um, in all their pixelated glory, uh, was like pressing the space bar on different things in the environment was like half the fun of that game. Yeah. Like it was a, t- a totally whatever, okay, fun, goofy shooter. But really, like the thing I got the most out of Duke Nukem 3D was like, I want to go see what the space bar does when I go up to the toilet. I want to see what the space bar does when I go up to a soda machine. I want to see what the space bar does when I go up to whatever other object, you know, when you go up to a stripper, like the the the, the part of the appeal of that game was like, oh, like this game was built around the idea that the environment is interactable and you should rather than presume it does nothing, you should presume that you should experiment and see what it does. And Duke Nukem, at least in my own like video game history, like was the beginning of me thinking about video games in those terms. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and it's sort of something I I always enjoy is is whenever even if it's the tiniest little thing, it just it just means that somebody somewhere on that development team thought, "Hey, it would be cool if it makes a sound if you do this or it would be cool if this flushes or it would be cool if this sink actually works." I mean, in Dishonored, there was actually value to this because you got there was a particular bone charm or whatever that would give you a little bit of whatever mana's called in that game. I forget. It's Friday. Uh, but it would give you like a little bit of of power for like using the sinks or using mm-hmm. the toilets. And it's like whenever that is made mechanical, it brightens my life. It, it's just sort of like somebody was thinking of me and the other, you know, seven people who care about this sort of thing. Like, oh, yes, interacting with the environment is A, really fun and actually really puts you in that place in space. And B, whenever you make it actually something that, you know, enhances your experience as a player in a, in a meaningful gameplay way, that is just saying, oh, yeah, this matters. We thought of you. And that, it's special. I think it's special. Yeah. And like in something like Dishonored, you get um – you see the like what does you know what does a bathroom look like in this world right like yes. and it's weird to see like oh so here's like a upper class uh shitter as it were yeah. and, and here's what the lower <laughs> classes have in this world and like it's this like object that is clearly you know what it is uh but it's different <laughs> from anyone you've seen in our world uh but it gives you a bit of a sense of like again uh, what reality is like in the Dishonored world, right? So, like, in Dishonored world, you just grab onto a big old, uh, like, chain handle coming out of the floor uh, <laughs> when, you, when you've done your business. Um, I think the other aspect of this stuff, at least, at least, like, going back to Duke Nukem, the way it always felt to me, though, to my, you know, <laughs> video game-addled youthful brain at mm-hmm. that point, it always <laughs> felt like... As these things were becoming interactable, it was sort of promising, or at least I was interpreting it as a promise that, like, someday this is going to be the holodeck, right? Like, it, it, it felt yeah. like, okay, someday <laughs> you're going to be able to go around this world and do all kinds of just normal everyday shit, and everything's going to be interactive, and it will all, like, mean something, and basically it's going to be, uh, what is it, the metaverse in uh, in Snow Crash? Uh, but oh, like, yeah, yeah. As these things were made, uh, you know, real in the game toilets work sinks turn on uh mirrors at that point like you know around that era mirrors started having yeah that that was also a duke thing yeah it was mirrors yeah (laughs) yeah uh it all started to feel like okay we are building like actual interactive worlds in games now uh and i think that started to it went away to a surprising degree right like now increasingly i just associate that stuff being done on large scale with immersive sims like you were saying danielle yeah. Well, cause, and, and that makes sense because, like, immersive sims, like, are doing world building through environmental design. And whereas Duke and games of its ilk, when they were incorporating interactivity, that was mostly a parlor trick. Like, that was, you know, the, the fact that the toilets flush did not tell you anything. Well, <laughs> I guess I told you something about Duke because the the reward <laughs> for finding something you can interact with was often a, like, one-liner as well. Um, so in that sense, like it was like part of, of Duke 3D's design, but like by and large games that were incorporating like the, the flushing of toilets and things like that, it was mostly just a, like a, a goof, like a, look at this thing we can do as opposed to Dishonored, which is more the logical conclusion of that idea, which is that, well, actually what we can do with this is try and say something about the world that we're building, especially in games that aren't like cutscene uh, driven or, or nearly as narrative heavy in the more traditional sense. Um, and it's not a surprise that a lot of games distance themselves from that because there are a lot of games in which 
the way the toilets look isn't necessarily telling you about the world or the game, or maybe that's just not part of its priority list. Whereas in an immersive sim, that is, you know, top five uh, of what it's trying to accomplish. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's also like a very funny and weird thing. I, this is a half-formed thought, but I've always been fascinated by the mundane in any game. Any game that let me kind of go into somebody's bedroom and see what it looks like in there. Is it neat? Is it messy? Are there posters on the wall? That kind of thing has always been a point of fascination for me ever since I was little and just sort of, you know, the the fun of exploring a game for me it, now and when I was little is always about those little things. Like how much care and detail went into these weird little things that – I'm sure the developers knew not a lot of people would really pay that much attention to, but some artist somewhere, some environment artist somewhere thought, oh man, no, this bedroom is going to look like, a, you know, this person, this type of person lived there or whatever it is. And I am always here for that. I am always so interested in what little tiny character details or what little tiny world building details can be put into just the arrangement of art assets and whether or not something is or isn't uh, sort of like a bespoke art asset, right? I, I've been playing Metro because, of course, we've been playing Metro and we're not going to talk about it a ton. But I definitely noticed in Artem's bedroom that he has like the Metro books in it, like the Metro. Uh, I, I don't know what the names of the books are off the top of my head, but I took a picture of it because I was like, oh, look at that. He's reading about himself, which is his own weird little thing. But it was it was like a tiny, tiny, tiny little I don't even know if you would call it an Easter egg, but it was a tiny little feature that I am always very like pleasantly surprised to see in any game. Memory yeah. serves, uh, you're going to find copies of Metro 2033 in a lot of places. Uh, in <laughs> yeah. Like, I think oh, they created okay. the Easter egg asset, and then they're like, shit, we need some books. Well, we got this one textured. <laughs> cool. All right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I always want to, I always want to like sit down an environment artist and just talk to them about like, what's your favorite crappy bedroom that you've decorated? What's your favorite, you know, dinner table that you've decorated or, or whatever? Because it, it's, those tiny little details absolutely go a long way in making me believe I'm in that world and or making me appreciate that world even more. I don't know if you guys have like a similar thing or if you have like a favorite general uh, detail or item that you like to sort of look for in a game. I, my, I have a, a deep appreciation for super high resolution textures, which is to say sure. uh, often with what you're talking about, sort of like – the uh, in games like the arrangement of objects and posters, uh, yes, may have said something about the the, the world or the character um, of that room, but to a certain point, often those were blurred in a way that they didn't actually have to provide a lot of detail in that poster. Like there wasn't like it, you could kind of tell it was an action movie or something like right. that, or you could kind of tell maybe it was a science book, but they didn't have to get granular. In, in sort of like the world building. And so I think that's part of the reason that like a game like Gone Home really struck me was because it had what I craved, which was like the highest of high resolution textures and the, yeah. and the smallest of details, because that's what I often was hoping for out of sequences like that in, in immersive, you know, starting with like Deus Ex was like, I, if I think of like the two games that I think about as a, when I was younger, games that interactivity like uh, 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 made an impact on me. It was Duke Nukem 3D and then and Deus Ex. Um, and what I wanted from Deus Ex was like, I wanted to look at the books and read all the titles, but like they 
didn't do stuff. At least I don't remember being able to read all that. Like you couldn't go down a bookshelf and and read all that <laughs> yeah. stuff. And part of you know part of that's logistical because what are they going to do? Come up with like thousands, tens of thousands of books to to populate that stuff. And so it worked in Gone Home because they were building one house where they could like figure out the asset load for uh, that. But I appreciated it because it it was I found it really enjoyable. And enjoy that kind of world building where you can go through someone's shelf and learn a lot about them that isn't necessarily spelled out. And so I'm always a big – it's one of the first things I look for uh, in, in games of that type is how high res are your textures because it says <laughs> something about the kind of world building they're trying to do where they cut off. Like the textures, yeah. like it really does. Like it says something about like, like, oh, like the posters were going to have like ultra detailed and you're going to read all of the fine print on that stuff. But the books, like, we're not gonna. Like, it doesn't matter how much you jack up the textures. Like, that stuff's just not going to be something you can read. And I always find seeing where the the the, the walls are on that to be, like, an, an enjoyable part of any one of those kinds of games. Yeah. It's one of the uh, interesting things as well is that, like, there have been – a lot of games are running a lot more high-resolution textures. So you get things like um, – a Call of Duty or Battlefield game where, like, nothing is interactive, basically. It's all various forms of, like, set decoration and wallpaper. But it's all hyper-detailed. But it's hyper-detailed to, like, no end, right? Like, it's just, <laughs> just to be hyper-detailed. Like, that is the end. Yeah. Right. Like, you're going through, like, you know, a house in suburban America during some sort of Red Dawn-esque disaster, right? But, like, you don't give a shit what the lives of the people were like inside this house. And it doesn't really look like whoever built that house really, you know, they just slap down like bookshelves, TV, whatever, and they rearrange it in different ways. But none of it is meant to serve any kind of purpose. Um, and again, like if you look at a lot of like immersive Sims, rooms are assigned to specific characters, right? Like you, like every single place you go becomes a tableau. Uh, where you're sort of allowed to sort of puzzle together who used this room and and why and and who they were, uh, you know, within this world. Uh, whereas, like, if you run around a game like The Division, there are a few places where they use like the ridiculous number of high res assets they have. That game create. does have a lot of high res assets. Now I'm remembering <laughs> that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I get vertigo when I think about like. <laughs> how much labor and effort went into creating some of the, like, like somebody must have spent a day, uh, create like at least a day creating like the, um, chalkboard, uh, menus. Oh yeah. The, the chalkboards the in the division in are really good. Good oh, chalkboards. They're, they're beautiful. <laughs> uh, but somebody must have like lavished so much care on that. But in most places you go, it's literally just to establish like, yeah, this is a cafe. This is a bodega. This is an electronic shop. And it's very rare, but not completely absent from the game, where you'll come across a space that is somehow tailored to one particular moment, right? Or like one particular It's character. like really only like the, the main hub where like you get that particular kind of detail, but not in the actual like sort of environments you're you're going out and fighting in. Yeah, I think occasionally if you go when you go into like the um quarantine buildings, occasionally mm -hmm. you'll see like something that suggests a little bit of the life that was there before, but yeah, for the most part, uh it's it's all pretty anonymized. Um the other thing I'm a sucker for and I remember like with Doom 3, I like Doom 3 by the way, but like uh, even I'm, at the I'm with you. Um, sure. Doom Doom 3 is good. Right, it's not bad. 
It's, it's not it's bad. It's both not bad and is good. <laughs> <laughs> not but bad and good. <laughs> what's real good is those interactive computer interfaces. Like mm-hmm. when mm. in that in those opening levels where you had to like after all the shit. Hey, spoiler! Uh, Hell invades the Martian base <laughs> in uh, oh, in shit. Doom Three. Yeah, it turns out you go and that one uh, creepy like dramatic scientist dude. Not on the up and up. Just thought you should know. Can't uh, after everything goes down and you have to make your way back through into the base and you have to like use a security terminal to unlock a security door. I remember like when the game sort of cues you to walk up to the security officer's screen and that person's dead uh, in their chair and you just have to sort of reach past their corpse and like press the button on the screen to unlock the door. I was like, holy shit. Like what an amazing technological feat. I've never seen anything like this. (laughs) People will surely realize what a brilliant game this is. It has buttons, in-game buttons. They work. (laughs) They work. They open the door. That's amazing. I I love stuff like that. I love interfaces within the fiction of a game so much. I love, uh, you know, the Human Revolution, the Deus Ex game from a few years ago now, 2011 maybe, had real good terminals and real good emails uh and that's that was probably my favorite part of that entire game was reading every email and like hacking into every email and sort of sitting down you know as you do as adam jensen and uh <laughs> just typing you know kind of kind of doing whatever the hacking uh mini game was and and you can see the rest of the world you can see the shattered glass you know somebody's stalking you somebody has a gun out and i was like i don't care I want to know about the hockey game that Bruno is going to on Friday. This is much cooler than everything else going on here because it has this just, again, tiny bit of reality and that tiny bit of putting you into this world and looking at, oh, what does a computer interface look like in this world? It's so much fun. That end, I know uh, probably a, a good old idle, uh, idle thumbs kind of call out would be like the 90s cockpit freakout, the like amazingly detailed cockpits of of like star you know starships in Danielle, in the 90s yes what if i told you there was a place where the 90s never ended oh my god and it's the sim community oh my god uh, like that hasn't really gone away that stuff Perfect. still exists like if you're making a Good. serious simulation you better have a virtual cockpit like yeah like people are going to control it through hot keys off their keyboard and everything uh but if you're serious about this you should probably be able to look down into the cockpit of your lovingly recreated A10 Warthog and oh, use yeah. the multifunction display. Uh, vintage, <laughs> like, 1978 with chunky little buttons. Uh, no, I mean, this stuff, like, is still out there. I think somebody made a um, somebody made a simulation about a, I want to say, like, a late Soviet or, or Russian... Um, surface-to-air missile system. And the entire game interface is you just looking basically at the dials and gauges that a surface-to-air missile operator would have uh, sitting outside, like, the trailer uh, next to this thing. Uh, And it's all just, like, analog displays and then a couple digital readouts and knobs and buttons that you have to, like, master if you're going to track, acquire, and launch on a target. It looks like the most, like... It looks kind of boring to me, but at the same time, like, damn, look at all those buttons. Like, that's an entire game. <laughs> yeah. You can press them, <laughs> and they do things. It's like a weird – because it's another step removed from reality, right? It's not your hand touching a button, but, like, in-game, 
your character's hand is touching that button and it's doing a thing. And for some reason, that's a weird, fascinating, disembodied, <laughs> but amazing feeling that I, uh, yeah, I, I, God, I love that stuff. I love dials and buttons and in interface stuff, uh, which reminds me of Alien Isolation. One of the things I love the most mm. about that game was the technology in that game, that clunky 70s or like 1981 era. Uh, you know, everything's analog, everything's a little fuzzy, everything has like a button to press or a gear to crank or, or something that needed doing, which of course played into the fiction of it's noisy and it and it's slow and it's not great. This is not like, oh, I'm aiming a device, a smartphone or whatever, hand terminal, whatever you want to say, at a, you know, at something and the door opens. It's, no, I, I need to make noise to pull this crank and the alien's probably going to hear it and eat my face off. Everything that, needs a CRT yeah. the size of a bread box mounted yes. on it. Oh my God. Um, yes. Game could have had more toilets. Uh, it could have ones. had more toilets. It did have great posters, though. Good posters, good magazines. A so lot of high-res are... textures in that game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, they were beautiful. I loved the um, <laughs> little things like the advertisements for the, um, oh, God, the creepy androids. Oh, the working Joes? The working Joes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Like, clearly, like, I love that in the fiction, the working Joe is the rejected shit brand of Android. That yep. nobody wants and is like <laughs> taking the entire company down. Like mm-hmm. it is like congratulations, you ended up making the Zune uh, of Android, <laughs> uh, which hey, Zune wasn't bad, uh, you know. Yeah, but and uh, shout out to all the Waypoint Radio listeners that uh, the last time I dared people to listen to it on a Zune, I got a endless stream oh, of people shit. who had hooked up oh. their zunes or have been hooking up their zunes Good. and listening to Waypoint Radio. So don't worry, they're, is they're there out there. Zune mafia like knocking on my door soon. I don't know, <laughs> but there, um, I definitely, I got at least like three or four different people that were like, "Hey, look, it loads your file," and I was like, "That's good." Listen, someday <laughs> after like the apocalypse strikes, somebody will find your room and your yep. abandoned zoom, and they will know everything about you uh, <laughs> from two thousand five. You know, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So like, but the the working Joe is like this disastrous like piece of garbage android that everybody hates and is like openly terrifying. Uh, and all the all the ads for it are kind of like trying to lean into that. Like, well, what do we do with this? Like, well, you you always know these are androids. And all the ads are basically like trying to make a selling point out of like our our androids are fucking terrifying. And it it really is just like they work. <laughs> like that's the whole like yeah. It's it's really good. It's really really good. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on in game advertising. Maybe we will one day. Uh, I think that, yeah, uh, to use a term I try not to use, it's adjacent. It works. Uh, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to, um, uh, talk a little bit about vending machines in general, not just for soda, but, uh, sort of as a general thing that you see a lot of in games and it's fun to interact with and it's fun to, uh, cause of course I, I played Bioshock again cause I did. Uh, and there's actually a sort of in the, whatever, collector's edition of Bioshock that came out last fall. There are a series of documentaries, like modern, recent documentaries uh, done with uh, Ken Levine and Sean Robertson, I think, who was the art director on that game. Uh, And there's a whole section on the vending machines and sort of how they came about and and sort of the fiction of the vending machine in this world, like in this hyper-capitalist society. Of course you can buy ammo at a vending machine. It's freedom of ammo, whatever. whatever. It's like this – it worked in the fiction but also it was like a really simple device. Everybody knows what a vending machine does. You put money in it and it gives you something. Like it's a very universal kind of thing. I wanted to know if if, uh, you folks had any sort of favorite vending machines other than, of course, the the soda machines. If there's other 
other vending that that struck your fancy at some point. Gather's Garden vending machines had a terrifying theme song uh, that haunts yeah. me to this day. Like uh, You're that always was growing. <laughs> yeah, that was a bad like. Ugh. It was good. It was evocative, uh, but it was it was a bad thing. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you this: I hate the vending machines in Dead Space. Uh, oh, hey, how do those ones work? So everything in um, Dead Space is a diegetic UI, right? Mm. A diegetic UI. Um, and so you go up to the vending machine, and basically it pulls up the same UI you have for everything, except right. now it's a really fussy uh, inventory management slash. Uh, vending machine where you have to like carefully select what you have in your inventory and mm. select like move to like put it in storage or you hit the wrong button sell it uh but you can <laughs> you, what you can't do is just get in there and just start moving stuff around and like really uh-huh. quickly like buying things every single thing is like a double confirmation transaction uh it's it's super it's super clumsy uh but the ui stuff is generally pretty slick in that game yeah Trying to, I'm looking through lists of vending machines, I'm trying to see if any <laughs> anything pops out. I, I liked the vending machines in Shenmue as well. I'm I'm one of those people who really liked all the capsule machines and vending machines and everything. You could you could get, you could get hot coffee in those. It was exciting. I'm just a big fan of the entire genre of like merchant or vendor who shows up in places where there should absolutely not be a merchant or vendor. <laughs> uh, sure. Anyway, again, like I'm playing a little bit of the division. And, like, you just go up and a couple, like, U.S. soldiers have set up, like, literally it looks like a Girl Scout cookie drive, except it's, like, <laughs> military hardware. And they're like, hey, buddy, you got to see what I got. And it's, like, an M203 or something. And it's like, okay, <laughs> sure, I guess money sure has value in this world right now, so you might as well take this and I'll Yeah, same with the, with the, the, myster- launcher. the mysterious stranger from Resident Evil 4. It's like, yes. oh, it's just very convenient that this man can open up his cloak and just sell me some grenades. <laughs> Uh, remember, um, oh God, no, I can't remember it now. Uh, it's, it's from the same team, the killing floor, uh, games, uh, right. and the, the, the merchant just shows up in between waves. I love that stuff, <laughs> uh, where, where it's like the world has literally gone to hell and somebody's like still trying to make a buck or two off it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, capitalism dies hard. Yeah, real hard. It's it, it, like in Zelda, the Zelda games where, you know, the bean... In the 3D Zelda games, the bean guy is always like underground somewhere, and it's like, how do you make money, dude? Like you just you have ten beans that you sell, magic beans, whatever that you sell, and you're underground. So how are you making a profit? And he's also eating the beans the whole time. He's eating his product. I I don't understand. I don't understand how this guy makes it work. But I guess you know it's it's a world of magic. So we have to kind of wave our hands a little bit. Uh, the last thing I wanted to to note, and it's not a vending machine or anything. 
Uh, but I really loved uh, the cheese in Perfect Dark. So the cheese was like a very random thing. There was a piece of cheese that showed up in every level in Perfect mm-hmm. Dark. And I believe originally, uh, this could be apocryphal, but this is a story I heard. It was originally somehow tied to like an achievement system of, of unlocking the cheats or something. But they abandoned that, but they kept the cheese in. And there is one level where there is cheese in a toilet. There's like a giant hunk of cheese, like Swiss cheese, just sitting in a toilet. Uh, and I always, you know, I was 16 when that game came out and, you know, I'm still just as immature now, but I still found that to be the most hilarious thing in a video game. It's just cheese in a toilet. Somebody did not like this cheese or maybe they loved it and they just stashed it in the toilet. I just always wanted to construct a backstory to the cheese in the toilet. I don't know if you guys have any weird okay, things so like that. Okay, so I have a that. weird story. Uh, <laughs> not about uh, toilet cheese. Uh, oh, okay. But- <laughs> And this was this was a photo I took on a phone that I broke like the next day, so there's no proof of it. <laughs> oh no! But in my old neighborhood in Boston, yeah. Um, one day I come across like there's a pretty busy intersection uh, right off Dorchester Avenue, and um, on the sidewalk is like an entire car bumper, uh, like the entire thing plus some of the frame around it, like just shattered and wrecked bits of bits of headlight, whatever. Um, so clearly somebody had some kind of accident, except in the middle of it was a massive, like, OED-sized thesaurus. <laughs> and I never, like, right? It was like, it was there amidst the wreckage. And to this day, I'm like, did somebody just get rid of a thesaurus, like, at this accident site? Or was there, like... A motor vehicle thesaurus, like, collision that happened, like, the day before. Considering that this is Boston. Right. I truly believe there's some Harvard student who thought it was – or whatever. There's a thousand colleges there – who thought it would be hilarious, you know, saw an accident or something and, and, like – Probably like circled something about, you know, unfortunate circumstances or something in that source and like threw it at the wreckage and thought they were like the cleverest boy in the world. Well, they got me because I've, I've spent about like a year and a half, two years like, trying to figure out like, so how was the thesaurus crossing the street? There was no blood. Was somebody hauling thesauri? Maybe that was it. Wow. Environmental storytelling, Rob, it's a hell of a thing. <laughs> Patrick, do you have any uh, <laughs> any particular, uh, you saw a tableau, whether in a video game or in real life, and it really made you think? I'm going to start looking around my neighborhood for thesauruses, honestly. <laughs> They're rising up. Exactly. <laughs> wow. All right, well. Whew, I think it's probably time for us to, to dip a toe in the bucket, unless there are other... Amazing, uh, amazing things in games that have done this for us. I don't know if I can if I could top the thesaurus that uh, got in a car accident. I don't even drink soda. This is the thing. I don't even. I can't. You know? I don't drink soda. I drink. You know, a, I drink a Coke Zero every once in a while when I don't want to have a coffee at four o'clock, but I need some energy. Yeah. We buy me and my wife buy the oh the, the mini, little ones, the tiny ones. Yeah. yeah. There's like they, they sell like, Coke, like soda shooters. Like, yeah, basically, <laughs> it's basically like doing like a. A big shot or like an espresso shot of like a Coke Zero. Because um, like sometimes like Friday it's like if I got to go out and do a thing with like family and it's like, ugh, like I'm just – I'm tired. Like I didn't sleep well. My kid was up late last night. 
I really like after I've had two cups of coffee, like I really don't want like a third. That's pretty much what I drink. I drink I slowly drink two cups of coffee throughout the day and I'm pretty much done after that. It's like I don't want to drink a third cup of coffee at like four thirty in the afternoon. So you mm. just sip that Coke Zero and if I had the whole can, I'd drink it. That's why I got to get the small one, limit myself. Yeah. doesn't feel like, I don't know, like when you're medicinally taking like uh-huh. a quarter of a Coke Zero, that doesn't feel like best life uh, <laughs> stuff right there. That doesn't feel like, yeah, ah, another one for the books. <laughs> well, a little bit of judgment there, Rob. I don't know. You know, I can't judge. Like, I'm not a parent. Like, I don't know how it gets. <laughs> Sometimes guess, you need your shot of Coke Zero. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want them to drink the coffee. Am I supposed to drink the coffee? What's my other option here? Uh, like they tea is a good option. caffeine pills. I, yeah, sometimes I've done green tea. I, I oh, will, no, 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 uh, no. Uh, like regular tea, black tea. It's I don't think it's as caffeinated. So like mm. a little um, orange, uh, what is it? Orange. Pico? Uh, yeah. That's a great one. You could do Earl Grey, like our uh, everyone's favorite. Captain. Yeah. Get on that it's 20s. not everyone's favorite. But. I think I'm going to keep drinking my Coke Zero. Speaking of honestly. space captains. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Elite Dangerous. Good in-game UI. Oh. Like, yeah, you can use you can use hotkeys, but if you look around your cockpit, and especially if you've got, like, some sort of head tracker, uh, you can do everything uh, using your head tracker and your, and your mouse to sort of cycle through in-game, like, touch screens and menus. And your little pilot character will, like reach their hand out and like ad- make little adjustments on the spaceship and you feel like you're really flying it. Okay, that's, that's a game awesome. that I wish had a um like just an hour experience version of Elite Dangerous because it's I have that I have the setup for that. Like I have a VR headset and I'd love to like fuck around with that game, but I don't like I don't want to play it. You know what I mean? Like, but I love all the trappings around it. And I wish there was just sort of like a, a 90 minute, like, hey, like, enjoy our UI and do it in VR and go land on a planet. But this I is, also don't want to become a traitor. I actually <laughs> want somebody to just like, basically, I want it to be like uh, David Fincher and Michael Douglas is the game. Uh, but for Eve online, where like I go in and like I think, oh, this is all real. I'm playing. I'm playing Eve online. But really, everyone around me is like part of an RPG experience that is like <laughs> helping me like get the distilled. Like, yes, yeah. what core, what core politics do you want to engage in? What treachery is going to happen to you today? And then like after an hour, I've like had the Eve experience and don't ever have to like mine <laughs> 500 asteroids in the middle of bumfuck uh, nowhere. <laughs> Oh. Fair. Sounds pretty good. I would like that too. I would even I would even put a VR headset on for that, and that's saying something for sure. Uh, I wouldn't risk uh, motion sickness for much, but space travel, you know. Maybe I would I fall could. twenty stories through a series of perfectly placed breakaway glass uh, panes uh, for that experience. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fair. Really sounds learned like something about myself and life. <laughs> And the game, you know, all of it. <laughs> all right. Uh, we have a question from Mike in St. Louis, and it's pretty meaty, so I feel like we can can dive into this one. <clears throat> I, I also like how Mike uh, paints a picture here. But anyway, here's Mike's letter. Uh, hey, Waypoint Dexters. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and my parents refused to allow video games in the house, scare quotes, until I was a teenager. 
Despite this policy, my, my parents were happy to send me out the front door with pockets heavy with quarters to play at local arcades, 7-Elevens, and pizza parlors. Sub-question, why don't we call more restaurants parlors? Mm. Done with that. And all of my foundational gaming experiences are inexorably linked to the arcade experience. Decades later, the cracks in the foundation have, I believe, made me extremely susceptible to microtransactions. Quote, well, at least I'm not paying every time I start a match, unquote. I say to myself as I purchase yet another skin or loot box. This leads to my question. While no one wants a uh, return to an arcade-style payment model for games, is there a game out there that you find good or addictive enough uh, that you would pay to play on a micro level? For example, would Austin pay 50 cents every time he needed to send a pilot back in time and into the breach? Would you still play PUBG or Fortnite if it cost a quarter every time you wanted to jump out of the plane? Love your work. Hope everyone is doing well. Mike in St. Louis. Uh, to answer question one, to speak as a parent who starts to think my kid who is a little over a year and a half, I'm you know things like screen time and stuff or things that come up, I can understand. I, I don't know his parents like if they thought video game clearly they didn't think video games were evil, and so if yeah. they were allowing them to go to the arcade. But I can understand the rationale they were coming up with by allowing them to go to the arcade because it's like really difficult to tell to t- take something away from a child when they have access to it immediately as opposed to the arcade is like a controlled – it's a timer, right? Like here are your coins. Here is your time at the arcade. When you leave, like no more video games as opposed to an, you know, an NES in the house is like, okay, now it's like how are we regulating – your your time with this, so you're not spending all of your time with it. So I actually think that was kind of t- till a teenager. I think is a little extreme, but I actually I, I see the logic behind only the arcade for a certain uh, period of time. Because um, I, I certainly write this with my kid, where she wants to watch Coco all the time, and it's making me cry openly in front of her at random periods of the day, and she wants to watch TV all the time. So I, I get it. But uh, anyway, second that part makes of the sense. question. That makes sense. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't have a game that I would. Uh, I uh, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. I uh, I don't like spending money uh, at all. Like I'm a notorious <laughs> sort of cheapskate. Uh, my wife is uh, both uh, enjoys and is constantly irritated by uh, the fact that I don't like to spend money. I'm the kind of person that goes to a restaurant and. Even if it's a nice restaurant, the first thing I do is look at the prices of the food <laughs> as opposed to what I want with to Coke eat. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I also buy the smaller Cokes because they're cheaper. Uh, and um, uh, then I, from the restaurant menu of the ones that are in the cheaper category, then I will pick something that I, I would like to eat out of that. Uh, I try to break myself of that habit because I have the kind of money where I could just enjoy something every once in a while when I go out to a restaurant, which isn't often. I, I this is all to say, or, or like, for example, when we went, uh, one of the fir- only true vacations I've ever really taken, uh, with my wife, like we've gone on trips, but like a vacation vacation, we went all inclusive to the Dominican Republic a number of years back. And, uh, th- the ability to, to have an all inclusive where I didn't have to worry about like, Oh, I'd like to go get a beer or something. Yeah. Like I could just go get it and not, I think about that I'm spending like another $7 because we were there for like seven days. And it's like the idea of spending $7 every time I wanted to like get a drink or something like that would have driven me like just I, – I wouldn't I wouldn't have ended up enjoying myself or not getting the beer I wanted to get because uh, I would have been worrying about how much I was spending. So even in a world – I don't – this didn't actually work out that way. But even in a world where I would have been spending 
uh, less by just buying the beers. My mental like yeah. logistics don't allow me to get to that place. Granted, this is useful for having a savings account and things like that, but yes. <laughs> I also realize it as a, a sort of a mental tick. This is all to say, like a large preamble to, the, I, that's why I don't buy microtransactions because I, I just stare at it and go, I don't need to buy this. Like the, the act of spending money like bothers me, and so I need to spend it upfront, get over it, and then move on. And the idea with, like of spending a even if it's smaller amounts over a longer period of time, I just could not do that. I will just move on from the game. And I'm curious if, if other people, maybe not as maybe not as irrational as, as I feel in that direction, but I wonder if uh, if you all feel similarly. Oh yeah, like 100. Yep. Like the moment a game is. But you're a free like you both have come from freelance life, yep. right? Like I've been <laughs> lucky enough to have mostly full time jobs in, in my work, but I have to imagine as freelancers that you you have to have that mentality, or else you're not gonna make it. Well, I mean, up to a point, but I also got really comfortable just saying, fuck it, I'll put it on credit uh, because pay came <laughs> oh, no. in late so often. But after a certain point, if you're going to let a little thing like not having money uh, stop you from living your life, uh, then you're just going to be completely fucked. Uh, so might, might as well just uh, put it on credit and then write the umpteenth uh, pleading email uh, to, to to your editor. Um, but uh, as far as like... The psychology of it, the minute a uh, game like shows its hand that that's the business model, like no matter how much I am enjoying it, I'm like, no, I won't give you any money. <laughs> like, I like, I actually like World of Warships. I enjoy like being a big old boat just floating around out there, <laughs> like <laughs> blasting away at things. Like sometimes with torpedoes, sometimes with like fourteen point <sighs> five inch artillery pieces. Who can say they're both good? They're wow. both fun. Uh, but the point is, um, I enjoyed that enough that I put in a non-trivial amount of time into it. But then I stopped playing it because it was turning into a grind. And at that point, that's where you really kind mm. of like need to invest a little bit of money. Like, the game is literally like, look, just give me a couple bucks. Just a couple bucks. That's all I'm asking. And you'll, like, get an extra ship spot, ship spot so you can, like, uh, you know, it's level It's free to that. play, right? Yeah. But they okay. limit... There's a lot of, like, convenience you're denied until you spend a little money. Um, and I just refuse to do it. Like, literally, like, I could have just spent five bucks and had the game experience be, like, immeasurably improved. And so I was like... Get your hand out of my pocket. I'm not giving five bucks for that. I don't care how big that boat is. I have to imagine you did that because you don't know where it stops, right? Like, it's one thing if it's a one-time, like, hey, if you just pay $10, like, we're going to lift a bunch of these sanctions on your gameplay experience, and, like, it's going to be cool. But the the problem I run into this, and I imagine, you know, this plays into your own mentality and not wanting to pay that, is like, well, where does this stop? So, okay, I pay you $5, but then is it just, okay, 10 hours from now? I'm paying you another five dollars. Like, is the is this purely? Hey, it's a free to play game. We have to put in some restrictions and annoy some players in order to make any money. Or is it like these exist because we want to drive you, you know, up a wall to the point that you will pay money? Like, it's just where where is the uh, the authenticity of the transaction coming from? I think it, it plays into my just gen- and, and yours. It sounds like general uh, proclivity to just not wanting to engage with it at all. Yeah, from boat to whale is what it sounds like what they're they're trying to do there to mm, you, mm. I done fell out of the boat, Danielle. <laughs> Take my credit card away from me. <laughs> I'm uh, exactly the same way. I don't think I've ever 
paid for a loot box or any kind of microtransaction thing. I don't think I've ever actually even backed anything on Kickstarter, which is to my shame in some in some cases. I'm just like stingy I'm to think as of hell. What I've done. Yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm just to... stingy. Like I, I, you know, I was a freelancer. I did have a full time job, uh, but I also had student loans that are like past any any human sanity. Uh, so like <laughs> I've always been this way. I was just going to say know. like past due, and I was like like how long? They were, like you should probably no, they, do something. I pay about every that. month more than my rent, and have for the last almost ten years. It is bad. Anyway, don't go to grad school, kids. There's Mama Danielle's advice uh, for life. But uh, to, to be back on topic, like I don't. I just it's that slippery slope thing. Exactly what you're saying, uh, Patrick. Like I just. If it was $5, you support the developer. Like, that's fine. I, I love doing that. Like, I will buy small games all the time just to be like, look, this developer is awesome. I want them to be able to eat and pay rent. Here's here's five bucks. But if it's like, all right, it's five bucks today and then like tomorrow it'll be five bucks and then maybe next week. And it's almost like once I go down that track, I don't know if I can stop the train. It's like this weird psychological, uh, just bizarre sort of wall that it feels like if I break that wall – that's it. That's that's where ruin lives. Like I'm I'm gonna be living on the street in a week because I won't be able to stop myself once that train gets. <laughs> I don't know. If that's crazy, but I, I worry about slippery slopes. Well, and then uh, maybe conveniently, or maybe this is the result of just habit, is that the games that usually ask these sorts of things are not tend to not be games I find myself attracted to to begin with. Like yeah. that games like Overwatch are are separate because um, that those are like relatively. Uh, like newer phenomenons in terms of incorporating these sorts of uh, economic approaches and marketplaces. But like a lot of games that are like grind heavy, like just that's, I just don't play a lot of those games. And that's where a lot of that stuff it tends to fall because it fits pretty naturally with the, the gameplay structure. So often I'm able to avoid this trap to begin with because it's either cosmetic based in which like I've played a hundred and you know, 50 hours of, player knows battlegrounds at no point with the the, the the exception of i think the hot pants at one point i thought about all right fine i'll, bu- I'll buy the hot pants but the hot pants were going for like 200 dollars, and i was like oh, i'm God. not buying the hot pants <laughs> like if you wanted to drop a zero off that like 20 bucks i might have thought about doing it just as a one-time uh goof that would have been good for the stream uh but generally i tend to like because cosmetic stuff doesn't do anything for me, like I know Austin has, uh, he spent a, a little bit of money on a uh, battlegrounds, and his character looks dope. Like it yeah. was worth like the fifteen bucks or whatever he he spent on on a game that he has gotten yeah. a lot more. Austin uh, also out of. approaches every game like a stage producer preparing for opening night. Like it, that's well, true. Yeah, as, <laughs> as someone that like specializes in like role playing, like it's not a surprise. Yeah. Like I don't, I I'm you know I've I've done role playing once in my life. It was it was the, 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 the when we did it for that stream, it, and I had job, a lot of yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I had a lot of fun. But it's not in sort of intrinsic to the way I approach games and and my interaction with them so not shocking that austin could both uh want to do something like that but also cut himself off once he's like created the character mm-hmm. as opposed to uh you know danielle like your your worry and i think for folks that have uh, psychological proclivities to uh uh you know falling down that slippery slope like you know not engaging with it once is preventing yourself from engaging with it you know potentially uh, uh a number of more times that could materially be you know, extremely negative. Yeah. What's interesting is that, um, like you see a lot of nostalgia for the arcade model, uh, within like the FGC, 
uh, sometimes, right? Like, mm. there's like a generational divide between players who like came of age and learned their craft playing in arcades versus kids like who grew up playing uh, online. Right. And like the arcades, there was like this scarcity element of like, it wasn't just you lost your quarter. It was that you had to go to the back of the line and like wait your turn to play mm-hmm. again. Uh, and there's this entire like idea that it, that turned out better and in some ways like more, um, studious players in some ways right because like to be heavily into fighting games in that era uh you actually spent a lot of time watching people play and thinking on your mistakes rather than just sort of saying boop new match uh here i go uh and so that's that's an element that i find interesting as well is that like there are entire genres that natively work on the arcade model like the way they're sort of meant to be experienced uh down to the foundations of the genre is as this like you know, pay per game, wait your turn type model. And the form of it still exists, but the experience has completely changed and it's completely changed the relationship you forge with the game. Uh, and I don't know, like, I could see that being, I could see that being fun if there were like a non obnoxious way to like put a quarter in for a PUBG match or something like that. Uh, where it's not yet to be like authorizing a credit card transaction every right. single time that happens. I could see that being kind of cool or just changing your relationship to the game uh, a little bit, right? Where it's like, okay, now like I bought in, like this is my Andy. What am I going to do with it? I mean, yeah, like if uh, it was really fun when we were at PAX this year or uh, PAX West uh, last year, and then Austin and Danica and I saw a bunch of this is in the, in the midst of PUBG fever. And we saw a bunch of, like, Alienware machines that were set up, and they were doing PUBG matches. And, like, it was super fun and stressful to, like, be dropped in with a bunch of people who are around you combined with people who are playing online. And, like, the idea that I could, like, what if there was, like, an actual formal setup at, like, a PAX or or something or at a mall or something that was just, like, here are a hundred machines, like, lined up in a circle. Everyone steps up. You plunk in your coin. It's yeah. like, all right, the, you are playing a battle royale with all the people in this room. Like the the stakes of like plunking down for that, and then having physically people in the room or something like that. That there is something about that that is enticing that would get me to want to play like pay on a on a per match basis. Because part of the fun of the or part of the appeal of the per match basis is the is the. Uh, and part of the arcade model is like the stakes, right? Like you put money in, in which you losing means you have lost that money or not accomplished a goal. Like that's part of the the the, the fun, the push and pull uh, with the arcade model. And so something like that could work in in a certain context with a game like PUBG. It's not. It would. I would never do something like that with me sitting at my computer. Yeah. Um. Um. Or at least not in a way that I can fully rationalize, like right now or conceptualize right now. But like something like I just described, like that sounds like that sounds badass. If I could go to PAX and just like, all right, here's five bucks, I'm in. Like especially if there was like a pool, like I could win that money oh, at yeah. the end of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like something like that sounds like really f- fucking okay. There's that. If I could play PUBG and I could put money into it and I had a chance to get that money back, oh. that is that is how I could see myself putting money. One of these days, somebody's going to open, like, just a straight-up, like, like, land casino in Vegas or something, and then we're all fucked. 
because then it, then it's going to be. Is like, there a law? Like how? Why is that? Why can't I just put five bucks on a on a match into PUBG? Like there's got to be something a reason I can't do that, right? Uh, I mean, there, there are gambling laws uh, as right. people from like DraftKings and stuff will, will, yeah. will tell you. That stuff's getting looser by the day, though. It is. It's starting to loosen back up. But I think the main thing is like in terms of like doing that like in a physical space. Um, yeah. The return you need on you something have to like age that. Gate and, like yeah. remember, mm. what you're up against is a slot machine or a right. kino, uh, you know, board or something like that. Where like that's just produces money for very little like time invested, right? Mm. Whereas like. Even if you're doing, let's not even say like PUBG. Let's say it's uh, like CS:GO or something like that. The amount of time it takes people to cycle through that for you right. to make your make your bank on that, mm, pretty tough. The whole bit that that appeals to me about arcades and that it sounds like would be amazing and appealing as well to you folks is the social element. Is being in a place with other people doing a thing that you like to do, and like yeah, I would spend money for that because it's. In my brain, it's no longer just a thing for me. Now it's a social thing, so it's fine to spend money on. I don't know why I have, like, weird categories that are, like, okay to spend money on or not okay to spend money on, but I totally do. And, like, even if it were, uh, you know, flat admission, $25 for a day at, whatever, two hours in the cool Battle Royale theme park, whatever – I would do that, and I don't even play that game. That just sounds like a really fun experience to have, but you know? I'm just a jackass when it comes to money uh, in general, though, right? Like, I'll stand there yeah. in the grocery store, like, comparing <laughs> two rolls of paper towels. And, like, there's a 10-cent <laughs> difference between them. And I'm like, mm, I don't know what the best value proposition is here. And then, like, take yeah. me to a fucking cocktail bar in Boston. It's like, it's a $50 Manhattan variant. It's the house special. And I'm like, hell yeah, give me that. Take this money. <laughs> I mean, it's it's what something has value to you, right? Like, who gives a fuck about the paper towels? But, like, you want that best drink. You want that best drink. You want the best experience in your life. Oh, my God. All right. Second, The sub-question, though, I, I do I do want to um, honor this. Uh, actually, first, before I go to that, I, we should end on the second question, the parlor question. So get ready for that. But I am thinking really, really hard here about, yeah, of course. Like, I, I don't have much of a relationship with grindy games, as, as Patrick was saying. I don't even have much of a relationship with Battle Royale games, to be honest. But, like, if it were Prey, if it were something I fucking love, and it would be something that has incredible value to me. Like, oh, Prey has a new mechanic. Prey has a new gravity mechanic where you can now, uh, you know, change the gravity in a given room, and it changes every system, and now you can play for another 25 hours, because I'm me, uh, with every interaction you can possibly have now with that new system, would I pay for that? And that's where it gets really tricky. Because, no, I, I don't care much about cosmetics and I don't care much about a lot of these other things. But, like, systems? But that's just DLC at that point. It is. Which, it I, is. Think is, which yeah. I think is a little bit is a different beast than... Sure. Uh, I've, I've always been happy to pay that. for DLC in games that I love. Because it's like, oh, this is, this is paying for another game experience as opposed to, uh, you know, something that is just sort of... I feel like, for whatever reason, I feel like this should already be part of the experience. It's like, no, this is actually cool extras, which I don't know if is an actual meaningful distinction, but there it is. That's how my brain sees it, I suppose. Um, All right. So last question, not last question, but like last bit before we say goodbye here. Why don't we call more restaurants parlors? I think Mike is on to something here. I like the idea of like a taco parlor. Doesn't that sound nice? Nope, like it you go to a t- no? <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> that sounds like shitty food. Yeah, look, you want to go okay. to a taco parlor? Here's the problem. Yeah, okay, no, a taco parlor. <laughs> I feel like that was that was started by some hipsters, and they're going to serve me some shit tacos. <laughs> yeah, the problem is like 
the taco parlor is a hundred percent being run by like northeastern wasps uh who like encountered a really good burrito once at this place called chipotle uh and like (laughs) just really wanted to shit yeah yeah so like no, ta- like taco parlor. Tacos do not live in parlors. That's not. That's not where that happens. That's that's not where that's going to go down. I'm sorry, um, I picked the wrong food. But I think, and that's the problem. Like pizza parlor. There's good alliteration. It's fun. Like mm-hmm. it's a big place to to specialized food. Exactly. Yeah. Ice, Ice cream, cream parlor parlors. sounds really nice, doesn't yeah. it? But does a cheeseburger parlor sound fun? Not really. Like we need a whole parlor for that. What about like, like a pasta parlor? That sounds like a really shady all-you-can-eat buffet where I'm definitely <laughs> going to, like, get food poisoning no! from, like, the ziti. Like, that's how it's going to You don't like the down. Alfredo sauce? Does it taste a little off to you? Yeah, ex- right. that's, what, that's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why it works for some things and not others, though. Like, pizza parlor, ice cream parlor. Does it have to be kind of junky food? Is that kind of what it is? Does it need to be, like, kind of, like, fun food? It's not, like, serious food? I don't know. What about, like, a... A candy bar parlor. That sounds nice. Yeah, I'm seeing some nods. I don't know. I well, think, Mike, I think I guess, parlor uh... is a very <laughs> parlor is not saloon. Word. Yeah, saloon too. Saloon. Saloon, but saloon's fun. Saloons where like there's the little honky tonk piano, like player piano going in the background. Yeah. Like someone might get shot at any moment, and there's like spittoons everywhere. That's great. <laughs> and that's where you want to have your burgers. Your burger saloon. Right? Yeah, like a burger place can be called a saloon. Okay. I feel like that's fair. All right. That feels like that feels like craft beers. That feels like a, a like a good but burger. They, they need to have their liquor license. That's the thing. Like pizza parlor mm, doesn't yes. need to 100%. have one. Saloon is required to serve liquor. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. We should also talk about fake liquor in games someday, but not today because I think we're we're ready to to wrap up. So uh of course, uh, I'll say the usual things. Uh, if you have a question or uh, a recommendation for good kinds of food parlors, uh, you can send those to gaming at vice.com with the subject question. As always, shout outs to Bowen for letting us use his track Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. We're on Twitter at Waypoint. We're on Facebook at Waypoint Vice and YouTube at Waypoint Vice. You can read everything we do at waypoint.vice.com. Patrick, where can people find you on this internet of ours? Find me at the saloon over at, <laughs> at Patrick Klopper. Excellent. Rob, what about you? At Rob Zachney on Twitter. Fantastic. Honestly, Twitter is kind of like a fucking saloon it is. sometimes. <laughs> it is a saloon. And it's a saloon where sometimes people throw bottles and sometimes they share bottles. And that's uh-huh. both of those things happen uh-huh. often on Twitter where you can find me on the Twitter saloon at Danielle R.I. Uh, thank you, everyone, uh, for listening. Uh, as always, I would like to sign off with a be good or be good at it. Have a happy weekend. Enjoy your life. Tofu parlor. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.